electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. This is a special Squawk Pod Report series, Weekend with Warren Buffett. Hi. We're coming to you straight from Omaha at the Berkshire Hathaway Annual Shareholders Meeting. As we move into the building, please have your credentials out. The wit and wisdom of investor Warren Buffett from the Oracle himself. They're good businesses. And to think that a criteria for Apple is different than the other businesses we own. It just happens to be a better business than any we own. If they had to give up a second car or give up their iPhone, they'd give up their second car. And on America's regional banking crisis. The CEO gets the bank in trouble. Both the CEO and the director should suffer. The stockholders of the future shouldn't suffer. The shareholders making the pilgrimage to Omaha every year. And you bought shares at what age? 13 was the first share I bought, yeah. Plus, who's at Berkshire's biggest party? The 60 portfolio companies, including the newest one, maker of Squishmallows. Children don't know there's a recession. (laughs) They don't know about inflation or recessions. We're bringing you the Warren Buffett philosophy. It's changed my life in a big way. Straight from Woodstock for Capitalists. If you would have asked us 26 years ago if this would ever, ever happen, we would say no way, but anything's possible in America. This is Squawk Pod Reports, Weekend with Warren Buffett. You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland chalky shake every day. Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk Pod Reports, where we're on the ground in Omaha, Nebraska, for the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting with tens of thousands of Warren Buffett fans and dozens of Berkshire Hathaway portfolio companies. I hadn't really had seized candy until we bought the company. Yeah, it took me a long time to get through that kitchen. Welcome to CNBC's live stream of the Berkshire Hathaway 2023 annual meeting. We are here live in Omaha, Nebraska. Good morning, everybody. I'm Becky Quick, along with Mike Santoli. And in just 30 minutes time, Berkshire Hathaway chairman and CEO Warren Buffett's going to be taking the stage with his vice chair, Charlie Munger. 
For five hours, annually, one day, basically unscripted, Berkshire Hathaway Chairman and CEO Warren Buffett, age 92, and his longtime business partner Charlie Munger, age 99, hold court to answer shareholder questions. Some come through our Becky Quick, who sifts through the thousands of questions submitted to CNBC through an email account, BerkshireQuestions at CNBC.com. Other questions come from inside the crowd, live at the meeting, and nothing is off the table, not for Warren, Charlie, or any of the other Berkshire bigwigs, like Greg Abel, Buffett's newly named successor, or Ajit Jain, Berkshire's vice chairman of insurance businesses. We have uh, Greg Abel, who's in charge of all the operations except for insurance. Next. And next to Greg, we have a man I ran into in 1986 and has made us look good ever since. We have the man in charge of insurance, Ajit Jain. Jayton. Woodstock for Capitalists, a free exchange of ideas and wisdom between these investors and their tens of thousands of acolytes. Hi. We are from Taiwan. 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 What made you come this time? To see a Warren Buffett. One big question for many attendees and the rest of Berkshire's shareholders, what does Warren Buffett think about technology? Ahead of the meeting, I caught up with my colleague Alex Crippen, producer of the CNBC Buffett Archive, a digital collection of decades of annual meeting recordings. And unsurprisingly, a lot of people want to know about Buffett's bets on tech, one company in particular. So one business that obviously Warren Buffett finds to be a good business, and the one that he's bought a lot of is Apple. Um, It's more than 40% of the portfolio of of other publicly traded companies that, that Berkshire invests in. And it's a little bit unusual that he owns so much of it now, right? It was a strange road that, that Warren Buffett took to his stake in Apple. Yeah, he, he certainly has a reputation of not buying into tech frenzies. Mm. He very famously in 1999, when the dot-com bubble was going really strong, he gave a speech in which he said, look, the internet's going to change the world, but you don't know that any particular company is going to be the one that survives in the changing of the world. And he points to the example of car companies in the in the 1920s. The automobile was clearly going to change the entire country and the economy, but there were hundreds of car companies and you just didn't know which ones were going to survive. It would have been really hard to say, well, it's going to be GM, Ford and Chrysler. Right. I mean, when was the last time you bought a Studebaker? And well, yes, exactly. Or, or an Edsel or whatever. <laughs> so so he's he's avoided those kind of frenzies. But with Apple, and he, he's careful to make the distinction, it's not a tech stock in his mind. It's a consumer stock. And and the example he gives and will give again is uh, just how sticky the products are, how people really love having an iPhone. They find it useful. They find it easy to use. His grandchildren just can't and be separated from it. He saw that in when I, I think the story is he took them to the Dairy Queen and they were just stuck on their phones. So he's he's buying something that he does understand, which is a, a product that consumers really, really want and are unwilling to accept substitutes on. And that's his his rationale on it. When you invest you constantly speak about the importance of building competitive moats, 
What advice would you give to CEOs about how to balance this dilemma, which is essentially short-term profit versus long-term defensibility? Thank you. Well, the answer is to control your destiny, which we've been able to do at uh, Berkshire. So we, have, we feel no pressure from um, Wall Street. Uh, you know, we don't have investor calls. We don't have to make promises. We, we get a chance to make our own mistakes and, and occasionally find something that, that works well. But we recognize that the people in this room and people like them uh, are the ones that we're working for, and we're not working for a bunch of people that, that care about whether we meet the quarter estimate or anything. So we have a freedom uh, that, we, that we get to use, and we're interested, in, we're interested in owning a wonderful business forever. Well, there aren't very many wonderful businesses, but we do learn a lot as we go along. We, we, Charlie and I have often mentioned how we learned so much when we bought C's candy, which we did. But we learned when we bought Ben Rogers chain of women's dress shops spread all over the, the, the eastern part of the country. Uh, we learned when we tried getting into the department store business back in 1966. And, as the ink was drying on our purchase price, we realized we'd done something dumb. But we're learning all the time how consumers behave. I'm not going to be able to learn the technical aspects of businesses, but that, you know, that, that'd be nice if I knew it, but it isn't essential. And, you know, we are obviously, uh, we've got a business at Apple, which is larger than our energy business. And we may only own 5.6 or 7%, but our ownership goes up every year. And I don't understand the phone at all, but I do understand consumer behavior. And I know how people think about whether to buy a second car. I know how they go out to different, I, we, we own auto dealerships. We own, we're learning all the time from all of our businesses, how people react to granimals versus, you know, selling them something else. And, and so C's was a sort of breakthrough, but, but it just, we just keep learning uh, as to more about how people behave and how a good business can turn into a bad business and how some good businesses can maintain uh, uh, their competitive advantage. Uh, over time, and and uh, so um, we don't we don't have some formula. Berkshire people, uh, we just but we can also tell in ten seconds whether it's something of interest. I mean, when, you know, when when uh, uh, I get these calls, and we want to send decks and all that sort of thing, which is nonsense. I mean, it. Uh, 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 it's a bunch of guys sitting that <laughs> get paid for drawing up these projections of the future and everything like that. If they knew the future, you know, we don't know the future, but we do know certain kinds of businesses. We know what the right price is, and we know what we think we can project out in terms of consumer behavior uh, and consumer th and threats to a business. And, and that's what we've been about, and that's what we'll continue to be about. We do get...
we don't get smarter over time. We get, we, we get a little wiser, though, following it over time. The next question comes from Ellie Amin Tibet, who asks, during an episode of Investing the Templeton Way podcast, Professor Damodaran, who he respects almost as much as Warren and Charlie, mentioned that he is not comfortable with positions becoming a large part of his portfolio, for example, when they reach 25 to 35%. He mentioned that Apple is now 35% of Berkshire's portfolio and thinks that that is near a danger zone. Wonders if Warren and Charlie can comment. I'd like to make one comment first, but Charlie will come up with... I think he's out of his mind. Yeah, I knew that was coming. (laughs) (laughs) But Apple is not 35% of of Berkshire's portfolio. Berkshire's portfolio includes the railroad, the energy business, Granimals, you name it, Seize Candy. They're all businesses. And, uh, you know, the, the, the good thing about Apple is that we, we can go up. They buy in their stock and instead of owning 5.6%, you know, they got down to, they got about 15 billion, 700 and some million Shares outstanding. They get down to 15 and a quarter billion without us doing anything. We got 6%. So we can't own more than 100% of the BNSF. We can't own more than 100% of Granimals or Seize Candy. And it'd be nice. We'd love to own 200%, but that just isn't doable. But they're all the same. They're good businesses. And to think that our criterion, our criteria for Apple is different than the other businesses we own. It just happens to be a better business than any we own. And we put a fair amount of money in it, but we haven't got more money in it than we've got in the railroad. And Apple is a better business. Our railroad is a very good business, but it's not remotely as good as Apple's business. uh, uh, Apple, you know, has a position with consumers where they're paying, you know, Maybe they pay fifteen hundred bucks or whatever it may be for a phone, and these same people pay thirty-five thousand dollars for having a second car. And if they had to give up a second car or give up their iPhone, they'd give up their second car. I mean, it's it's an extraordinary. Probably we don't have anything like that that we own a hundred percent of, but we're very, very, very happy to have five point six or whatever it may be percent, and we're delighted every tenth of a percent that goes up. It's like adding $100 million to our earnings. I mean, our share of the earnings. And they use the earnings to buy out our partners, which we're glad to see them sell out, too. The index funds have to sell if they bring the number of shares down. And, uh, you know, I, it, we went up slightly last year, and I made a mistake a couple of years ago when I sold some shares when I had certain certain reasons why... Uh, gains were useful to take that year from a tax standpoint, but having heard having heard me say that, it was a dumb decision. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, Charlie, you've already given your comment about it, but but we do not have 35 percent of Berkshire's portfolio. Berkshire's portfolio is the funds we have to work with, and we want to own good businesses, and we also want to have plenty of liquidity. And beyond that, you know, the sky's the limit or, or our mistakes, who knows what the bottom is. 
Charlie, do you want to add anything to your earlier comment? <laughs> well, I think one of the inane things that's taught in modern university education is that a vast diversification is absolutely mandatory in investing in common stocks. That is an insane idea. It's not that easy to have a vast plethora of good opportunities that are easily identified. And if you've only got three, I'd rather be in my best ideas instead of my worst. And now, some people can't tell their best ideas from their worst, and in the act of deciding that an investment already is good, they, they get to thinking it's better than it is. I think we make fewer mistakes like that than other people, and that is a blessing to us. We're not so smart, but we kind of know where the edge of our smartness is. That is a very important part of practical intelligence. And a lot of people who are geniuses on IQ tests think they're a lot smarter than they are. And what they are is dangerous. And, but, but if you know the edge of your own ability pretty well, you should ignore most of the notions of our experts about what I call diversification of portfolios. Hi, Charlie and Warren. Thank you for this superb uh shareholder meeting celebration. My name is David Chung from Hong Kong and a proud graduate of Chicago Booth. I have also taken one of your advice to give my children a share for each of their birthdays. Although they won a Berkshire Hathaway A shares, <laughs> they will do just fine with B shares. <laughs> my question is, how do you see the current U.S.-China internet companies' valuation and the price disparity? Given there has been many uncertainties such as geopolitical tensions, significant cost optimizations with leaner U.S. tech firms, while China tech has been through all that already. Thank you. Well, there's been some tension in the economic relationship of United States and China. I think that that tension has been wrongly created on both sides. I think we're equally guilty of being stupid. If there's one thing we should do, it's get along with China. And we should have a lot of free trade with China in our mutual interest. And I just can't imagine. It's just, just so obvious. There's so much safety and so much creativity that's possible. Think of what Apple has done by engaging in a partnership with China as a big supplier. It's been good for Apple and good for China. That's the kind of business we ought to be doing with China, and more of it. And with everything that increases the tension between the two companies is stupid, stupid, stupid and ought to be stopped on each side. And each side ought to respond to the other side's stupidity with reciprocal kindness. That's my view. 
Halfway through Saturday's Berkshire Super Bowl, the shareholder meeting, CNBC anchors Becky Quick and Mike Santoli hosted a live halftime show. They sat down amid the hustle and bustle of the busy exhibition floor during the lunch break with a shareholder and investor in her own right, Anne Winblatt. She's a venture capitalist famous for her tech bets over the last 30 years. Anne's firm, Hummer Winblad Venture Partners, has launched 160 enterprise software companies, and Winblad has served as a consultant for IBM, Microsoft, and many others. She was the perfect person to digest some of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger's hot takes. Here's Mike Santoli. Joining us now is noted tech investor Ann Winblad. She's co-founder and managing partner of Hummer Winblad Venture Partners. Uh, and Ann, it's great to see you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having for, me. For stopping by here. Um, so there was a fair bit, I guess you would say, of, of skepticism about uh, AI's ability to completely upend all these industries and maybe act as a threat to a lot of the businesses that Berkshire owns, but also some suspicion about, uh, as Warren says, you can't uninvent it, and there are some unintended consequences. As a tech investor looking for disruptive ideas, how are you framing uh, this opportunity? Well, we're framing this opportunity as significant. Uh, the challenge for many companies, we heard in the description of Geico today, where when asked about telematics, which is basically analytics, the step before it generative AI as we're discussing today. And even there, it, Ajit mentioned that they have to still finish their digital transformation process with their core computing architecture before they get to core analytics, let alone get to generative AI. So we'll see this go very, very fast in the tech industry itself, but it'll take a little bit more time to reach core industries that we're talking about today. And one of the things that really struck me, and, and you come to this meeting every year, so you hear these things. Um, Warren kind of laid out the case when, when we asked about companies that are offering insurance, whether that be Tesla or some of the other auto companies also in offering insurance. He pointed out that there have been probably 10 insurance companies that have launched and called themselves technology companies. We're a technology company, we're a technology company, we're a technology company. Most of them have failed because they stink at actual underwriting. They're no good at taking risk and figuring out how to price it, which is what insurance is. He said, everybody's a technology company. You can look at any of these companies, they all use technology. As a tech investor, how do you figure out who's a tech company and who's just a company that uses technology? How do you differentiate? Well, we focus on enterprise infrastructure. so. When we look at the big pieces starting to move around, like adding new infrastructure like generative AI, it means that you've got to change the mechanisms that connect all the wheels. In generative AI, one of the big issues is going to be how you get all this data to keep feeding the machine and making it more intelligent. That's with APIs. And we built a company called MuleSoft, that's part of CRM now, that deals with APIs about 10 years ago. Now, they were not a CRM company, they were an API company. So we're under the hood. And under the hood is what they call deep tech, which everybody says they're investing in these days. So we try to look at the engineering of this versus the verticalization, because we can't be experts in these industries. And this is where technology investors do go astray. We know technology, 
We don't know insurance. We don't know retail. We don't know education, unless you're a specialty investor there. Okay, then let me ask you one more question on that point. Apple, everybody thinks is a technology company. Warren Buffett started investing because he said it's not. It's a consumer products company. Is Apple a tech company? And do you think it still has advantages of a tech company? Is that why you would buy the stock? Apple is a consumer company. It is. In the U.S., it has, for a while, it was a luxury brand. Now it's a global brand. It, it is an enormously successful brand company, but it has to make technology work to do that. And it also sells us that technology in a consumer appliance. That's, it's done for 16 years. It's amazing that the iPhone is 16 years old. So I think if you walk around and ask people to describe the technology they're walking around with, they can't describe the components of the iPhone but they can describe their experience with that piece of technology. And that makes it a consumer company. You mentioned this is all going very fast. You mentioned generative AI a couple of times. Is it a qualitatively different thing or is it just what we've generally become accustomed to, which is waves of you know, innovation wash through, software gets better, gets smarter, you know, big data was a buzz phrase yes. a couple of years ago. How different is what we used to talk about as big data from AI? All right, it does come in waves, and there are failure waves that come first. And we've been working on the AI wave for a long, long time, as long as I've been in technology, which has been over four decades. But what we now have is hyperscale computing. We have companies that are now part of this, like NVIDIA, which really provides that infrastructure that we can do this. So we're really moving to hyperscale computing, which allows us to process this data really fast. If you've used ChatGPT, one of the magical things about it is there's no latency. It's just instant. We're going to couple this in the next wave called quantum computing, which of course the big tech companies are working at. But realistically, it's allowing us to harness data in a very, very different way and also use what we call machine learning in a, in, in a much more deeper way. So when we combine all these hyperscale computings with massive amounts of data, with the, the improvement in artificial intelligence itself, it is a significant wave. All those other pieces came along as little waves, but this is a big one. Quantum will be big once it finally happens as well, which is the next phase of hyperscale computing. And Great to catch up with you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of the meeting. Following Saturday's lunch break, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger return to the stage for an afternoon of questions with some props. Now, typically they have a couple of cherry cokes and a box of peanut brittle, but this session included two signs, one in front of Buffett reading, for sale, and one in front of Munger, held to maturity. Sales are terrific out there, so... You're my kind of crowd. <laughs> I've been getting reports. We're breaking all kinds of records. And we're going to start off with question number 26, which goes to station, station two. Hi, Warren and Charles. My name is James from Malaysia. Given the recent challenge faced by the major US bank, what is your overall outlook on the banking industry? How do you assess the risk and the opportunity in this section? Well, anticipating a few questions on banks, I decided we should start using bank language here. Describe. <laughs> and Charlie. 
the, the situation in banking is, is uh, very similar to what it's always been in banking, that, that fear is contagious, always. And historically, sometimes the fear was justified, and uh, sometimes it wasn't. My dad lost his job in 1931 because of a bank run, and they had a bank run on state banks. And uh, the head of the Omaha National Bank said, well, we're a national bank, and they didn't have a run on the national banks. And of course, they both faced the same problem. So it, it used to be that if you saw people lining up at a bank, the proper response was to get into the line. And uh, they'd always leave it, and the story is that Sidney Weinberg of Goldman Sachs during one of the great bank runs, uh, back in 1907 or thereabouts, had a job as a runner at Goldman Sachs and asked his boss if he could take the week off. And the boss said, sure, not much is going on anyway. So he got in line, at, whether it was the Knickerbocker Trust or wherever, and uh, as he got toward the front of the line, he sold his place in line to somebody. He didn't have an account at the bank, but that was an asset. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the, the banking system has changed so much over the years, and we did something enormously sensible, in my view, uh, when we set up the FDIC. As many as 2,000 banks had failed in one year back after World War I. I mean, bank, bank runs were just part of the picture, and if you have people that are worried about whether their money is safe in the bank and all trying to withdraw it, you can't run an economy very well. So the FDIC was very logical. It's got changed over the years some. But here we are in, you know, 2023, and we actually see the FDIC pay off at 100 cents on the dollar to everybody or make it available on all demand deposits. And yet you still have people very worried about their, periodically, geographically, all kinds of crazy ways. And that just shouldn't happen. So the messaging has been very poor. It's been poor by the politicians who sometimes have an interest and having it poor, it's been poor by the agencies, and I'd say it's been poor by the press. I mean, you shouldn't have so many people that misunderstand the fact that although there may be a debt ceiling, uh, it's going to get changed. Although there's a $250,000 limit on FDIC, the FDIC uh, and the U.S. government and the American public have no interest in having a bank fail and have deposits uh, uh, actually lost by people. We had a demonstration project the weekend of Silicon Valley Bank and the public is still confused. So it, it really, it's something to have a law that was passed in 19, or a law that became effective in 1934, although modified in some ways, not understood about something as important as a banking system. I don't think the American public is that dumb and I, I just, uh, well, I made that offer over in Tokyo, incidentally, that I haven't heard from anybody that wants to take up my million-dollar bet on, on whether 
the public will lose money in, 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 uh, if they have a demand deposit uh, at a bank, no matter what the size. So that's the world we live in. It means that a lighted match can turn into a conflagration or it can be blown out. And uh, who knows what will happen. And we don't have any worry. We keep our money in cash and treasury bills at Berkshire because we keep 128 billion or whatever it was at the end of the quarter. And we want to be there if the banking system temporarily even gets stalled in some way. Uh, it shouldn't. I don't think it will, but I think it could. And uh, I think that the incentives in bank regulation are, are so messed up, and so many people have an interest in having them messed up, uh, that it's, it's totally crazy. Who knows where it leads? But you have to have a punishment for the people that do the wrong thing. And if you take First Republic, for example, you could look at their 10K and you could see that they were offering non-government guaranteed mortgages to in jumbo amounts at fixed rates, sometimes for 10 years before they changed to floating. And I mean, that, that's a crazy proposition. If it's to the advantage of the bank, they get it. <coughs> they get the guy coming in and says, I'll refinance at one and a half percent and then one percent. And if it's, if it's advantage the other way, the fellow keeps it out 10 years. You don't give options like that. But, but that's what First Republic was doing. It was a plain sight. And the world ignored it until it blew up. And uh, uh, some of the stock in some of these banks that were held by insiders was sold. And who knows whether they had a plan or whether they, some plan that was innocent or whether they started sensing what was coming. But, but you do know that the directors are not going to be able to read some book or anything like that. But they do, they do have the ability to hold the CEO accountable. The CEO gets, gets the bank in trouble. Both the CEO and the directors should suffer. The stockholders of the future shouldn't suffer. They didn't do anything. It, it doesn't teach anybody any lessons or anything. It teaches the lesson is that if you run a bank and you screw it up, you still live, you're still a rich guy, and the clubs don't drop you, and, and the charity groups don't quit asking you to their benefits, and the world goes on. That is not a good lesson uh, to be, teach people who are holding the behavior of the economy in their hands. So I think there's some work to be done, but I don't think it's, I don't, it's not a difficult problem. It's just we've screwed up the answer, and we've screwed up the communication of it. Charlie? Well, I'm so old-fashioned that I kind of liked it better when banks didn't do investment banking. That makes me very outmoded in the modern world. And the country decided it was contrary to public interest for a while, and then, then uh, the banks wanted to get back into it. Did they ever? Yeah. No, I mean, I, I don't think having a bunch of bankers, all of whom are trying to get rich, leads to good things. But I... I think a banker should be more like an engineer. He's more like 
into avoiding trouble than he is getting rich. Yeah, and they could do fine. They, they, they can do fine that way. And I think we had a big mistake when we create a bank where everybody who joins it plans to get rich. Yeah. It's, a, it's a contradiction in values. There is so much more from the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting on Squawk Pod Reports right after this. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Squawk Pod Reports from the Berkshire Hathaway Annual Meeting in Omaha, Nebraska. This annual meeting is a festival, really a celebration of investing, and it's also part reunion. Some of these folks have been showing up to Omaha once a year for decades. I sat down in a very busy hotel lobby here in Omaha with one such shareholder. My name is Jonathan Dash, Chief Investment Officer of Dash Investments. A guy who got in on all the fun when he was 13 years old. Eighth grade is when I bought my first share of Berkshire Hathaway. And he's never looked back. I had heard about Berkshire for the first time in a fifth grade stock market class oh I had taken uh, that my teacher fortunately gave us. And it was a lot of fun and that kind of gave me a little insight into what I might enjoy doing. And I remember we would open the newspaper and go through the stock section and go through all the little right, symbols. Yeah. And then I saw this one company that was $2,600 a share back then. And I raised my hand and I asked the teacher, what is this one that's $2,600? Everything else was below 100. And she said, oh, that's this really smart, wealthy guy. Warren Buffett owns that company. So that name always stuck in my head. Wow. <laughs> in the eighth grade. And then how did you start following him a little bit more closely beyond your stock class? Yeah, so a few years after that, that class went out in fifth grade, I was walking in a bookstore, I was going on a trip, and uh, I went into a bookstore, which was unusual because I didn't really read any books ever. So I actually had never probably finished a whole book in my life until wow. that age. And I saw there was a business section, which was sparked my interest and right in front of me right when I walked to the business section I saw this book called The Warren Buffett Way. I read the whole book in a couple days. Wow. And how did you start coming to the annual meeting in Omaha? Yeah so that year when I read the book um, or maybe it could have been a year after that I had read other books that uh, you know a Buffett biography called uh, by Roger Lowenstein called mm -hmm. Buffett. Yeah. And I read every other book that had his name in it, and I read that he had an annual meeting, and I bought shares at that point, and I said, I got to go to this annual meeting in Omaha. And, and you tried. bought shares at what age? 13 was the first 13. share I bought, yeah. I've got to get shares in this company and go to the annual meeting. That's yeah. not something a lot of eighth graders say. Yeah, I got one share so I could come to the meeting. Wow. <laughs> I think the first year I came to the meeting, I was about 14 years old. I flew out here on my own, so it was a pretty interesting oh experience. Your parents said, go ahead to Omaha? Uh, they, they, were, uh, they were okay with it. <laughs> I did, they just didn't understand. They first asked, well, how much is all this going to cost, and is that a good use of your money? And I said, yeah, to me, I think it's a very good use of my money. <laughs> so, I think, and that, so I came. Wow. 
And I'd read in one of the books that he eats at Gorat's Steakhouse the Sunday after uh, the annual meeting. Uh, an Omaha landmark. An Omaha landmark, that's right. So I went to the steakhouse and everyone was really nice. Uh, it was a great place. I didn't eat dinner, I didn't have a reservation, but I thought at least I could just sit somewhere in the lobby and see if I could see Warren Buffett eating dinner. I thought that would be a really cool thing. So I kind of walked around the restaurant act, acting like I was going to the bathroom probably or something and I saw Warren eating dinner with his family uh, and I got really excited and he actually saw me walking by and he called me over and asked me what I was doing here and I kind of explained I read a couple books that were written on him and I got really interested and I wanted to come out to the meeting. And I had a little book that I had taken notes in and he offered to sign it for me and told him uh, thanks and I let him get back to dinner after that. So it was great. But then you did something kind of special at the steakhouse, right? You took it, you took it up a level, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, I did. So I saw his waitress and I asked the waitress, hey, can I pick up the check for Warren and his family? Oh I, I had a feeling she'd probably say no, but she was perfectly okay with it. And I was very happy to be able to do that. And it, all I was going on in my mind is like, it'd be great for to find a way to say thank you to Warren for being so open about his philosophy and where others could write books on him. So Gorat Steakhouse, you start paying Warren Buffett's tab in what year? 19... Uh, I think 1995, probably, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was in high school in 1995. I don't think I even knew who Warren Buffett was at that right. time. How long did you pay the bill? I've been paying the bill every year since then, so I think it's close to 29 years Oh my goodness. Now. And it's been a pleasure. And every year after the uh, I pay the bill, Warren comes over to the table... Because you have a reservation now. Yeah, because now I have a reservation, <laughs> and now the restaurant knows me, so they give me a good, a good table, you know. And um, and he would come by and just say thank you, and we'd be able to chat for 5, 10, 15 minutes, and that just meant everything to me. Right. And, uh, if there, you know, and it was just great, and it's changed my life in a big way. People like John Dash invest in Berkshire Hathaway and through it the 60-plus portfolio companies. And each one of those comes to this capitalist party ready to dazzle shareholders like John and many thousands of others and the stars of the show, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. This year on the Berkshire Hathaway exhibition floor in the CHI Health Center in Omaha, somewhere between Dairy Queen's Dilly Bars and Geico's giant inflatable gecko was the Berkshire newcomer, Jazzwares. This is a pinch me moment for us. Jazzwares owns Squishmallows, which are plush, stuffed animals, and if you're into toys, you have kids, or have been to just about any retailer lately, you have seen them. Usually the adults don't know until the kids start collecting. They're in all sorts of fun shapes, pineapples, cows, and this weekend, even Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. If Charlie outsells me, keep it quiet. <laughs> Jazzwares have partnered with all kinds of major brands. We are also selling Pokemon products and Cocomelon products. Star Wars. Becky paid a visit to the Squish Squad. 
All right, we are joined today by Judd and Laura Zaberski with Jazzwares, and you can see behind us all the cool stuff that's here. They are the CEO and the President and Chief Operating Officer, am I getting that yes. right? Yes, a yep. Chief Commercial Officer. Chief Commercial Officer. Okay, let's talk a little bit about Jazzwares, what it is, when you guys got created, because I think this is going to be the hottest booth here. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so, Becky, it's so nice being here. Thank you for having us. I've been watching Squawk Back since before I would could remember. Um, so <laughs> it's too. a pleasure being here. I, 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 it, it, it's, it's truly an honor. Thank you. Oh, so um, in 1997, I was a practicing lawyer uh, with Laura, and I looked at her one day and said, you know, this isn't my destiny. I want to go and make toys. Uh, a little more fun than A little more fun. Exactly. I'm, I'm a frustrated artist. I'm not really good at it, but I'm really big into comic books, and uh, that love never changed when I was a lawyer. So I went to China. I learned how to make stuff, and um, that was the birth of Jazzwares. Laura, did he have a bunch of like creations or collections around the house before you did any of this? Was he a, a lot of doodling, mad doodling, <laughs> everywhere on everything, and just always loved comic books. Always a huge fan, and a super kid at heart. Okay, but that is not enough to create a business. What did you see <laughs> when you did this? Like, what happened when you went to China? How did that come about? So, so China, when I first went to China, it wasn't the China that people know today. I would go into major cities like Shenzhen uh, before. It, was built up. Yeah. So I would go to factories, I would learn the processes, and I met um, many factory owners that we still work with. Uh, it was it was not easy. I used to go on dirt road for two hours, but I found out it was only 20 miles. Uh, it just, it was a different world. Uh, today, China has um, really evolved, which everybody knows. So it, it, was, it was interesting, it was interesting. Well, how did Jazzwares get from you kind of sourcing stuff in China to where we are today, which is? Okay, you have the Squishmallows, you have uh, licenses for things like Star Wars Micro Galaxy, you have licenses for Coco Melon, you have um, Pokemon licenses. How did you get to that point? It's a great question. Um, it took us a long, long time. 26 years it took us to finally get these type of brands. Uh, we started with WWF, which is now WWE, but we didn't make toys, we made houseware products. And through just, I know, uh, if, if you remember that. They were sippers with a straw yeah. coming oh, out of yeah, the head. Yeah, okay. Used as bowling pins in our house often. Yes, yes, <laughs> okay. yes, 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 yes. So that was the beginning. And the, the interesting part about that is I learned every step in the manufacturing process. I learned injection molding, roto molding, um, uh, blow molding. And it was the first introduction to me to understand how we can make and design great product. So that was the beginning. And going full circle, his second license was Pokemon. Yeah, and, 1998. And so it was a huge success. And so to be in Pokemon and housewares, and then now having Pokemon now, it's been really a full circle moment. So when, when did you join and say, okay, we both have to be doing this business? We joined, I was a practicing lawyer. I stayed practicing law for another nine years, a trial lawyer. And then I sold my firm and joined Judd in 2005. Came in to kind of help with uh, some licensing, some packaging. And then that evolved very quickly till I was running sales. That evolved even more than I was running sales, marketing, and brand. Then I became chief commercial officer and then was promoted not so long ago to be president of the company. Well, who came up with the idea for Squishmallows? Where did this come from? So we, um, I'd like to say we did, but we acquired a company called Kelly Toys. Okay. And they were making Squishmallows. It's been around since 2017. And we were fortunate enough to build the brand once we acquired 
Kelly Toys. Because the, the, I mean, people compare this to things like Beanie Babies mm -hmm. or to the Cabbage Patch Kids, uh, where each of these dolls has a story that comes with it. Um, and you guys are holding the special ones you have yeah. yes. for this meeting of Warren and Charlie. First time you've ever put a human face on one of these. Yeah. Yes, first time. So what, I think it worked out pretty good. Yeah. The storylines, was that part of it too, or did you guys add to that? Yeah, so every Squishmallow has their own individual story. Yeah. And when we acquired Kelly Toy, we saw that they had this almost diamond in the rough. They were, people were passionate about it. It wasn't available everywhere. It wasn't available globally. And so when we came in, we just expanded. Expanded what they were doing, the marketing, the distribution, improved the manufacturing, and then um, the bios were always part of it and what made them really special because kids and adults all identified with something in the bio. And so Charlie and Warren both got their own bio that represented them as people, not just business people, but the really interesting individuals they are. One of the things that I think is so amazing, I mean, these are cool plush toys, but they're plush toys. They're yeah. squishy. Yeah. They have become the most popular toy brand in 21 states. They yeah. beat out Nerf, Play-Doh, they yeah. beat out Nintendo Switch and Hot Wheels. How does that happen with the plush? And have you guys been surprised by how they're taken off? Of course. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, uh, it struck a nerve during COVID. Um, it was this palliative type of feel. So people that were sitting at home, they bought more and more Squish Mouths, and they fell in love with the product. So. We're the number one best-selling toy in the U.S. Yeah. and in many, many markets. And I think what's interesting about it is our demographic. It's not just kids. Yes. It's adults. It's grown women. It, we did a Squish Squad tour, and we went to major cities, and we looked at the line, and we said, wow, there's not that many children in the line. And that's <laughs> the interesting part. People find it emotionally supportive. Um, and know, that was a big surprise to us. Yeah. People in their 50s are buying our squish mellows. Wow, that, that's very unusual in the toy business. How do you keep this from becoming a fad? How do you keep changing and evolving to make sure it doesn't die out? Restraint. Yeah. Making sure you're constantly coming up with new assortments and not overshipping. So that's why there's a limited number of these here this time yes. around? Yes. How many so, are here for the, for the meeting? We have a total of... A little north of 8,000 8, okay. units. So and is there it. a limit on how many people can buy when they come up? Per transaction, two per transaction. And we are going to do a day, because we don't want to sell out on one day, and make sure everybody that arrives here tomorrow it can buy a Charlie and Warren, so they will um, we'll have a new fresh stock load tomorrow. So how did you guys get acquired by Allegheny, I guess, and, and why? What, what happened when you went to Allegheny? So in 2014, uh, we were approached by um, an investment banker and said, I think you should sell part of Jazzwares. It's um, really to, to pick up our growth. Uh, and. and um, we didn't understand how to acquire companies, but we knew that was the next evolution for Jazzwares, so we needed a partner. And we sold a minority interest to Allegheny, who were awesome partners in 2017. Um, and then, because we really liked them, we sold more of our shares to um, Allegheny in 2016. Okay, and when you found out you were being acquired by Berkshire Hathaway, your thought was? <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. And what's happening? <laughs> uh, dream come true. If you would have asked us 26 years ago if this would ever, ever happen, we would say, no way. But anything's possible in America. Well, the interesting part is Berkshire didn't keep all the companies. I think there were some they kind of got rid of. Yeah. They saw you guys and they chose to keep you. Which we were, you know, we, I remember last year we were watching. We knew the transaction was happening. We watched 
the annual shareholders meeting and we said, are we going to be there next year? What's happening? There was a lot of uncertainty and I'm so happy that they recognized us to be the operators. I think we are and saw something fun and different and exciting because we've had tremendous growth and but it's been really strategic. We were in video games long before anybody else was in video games. So. We've been doing it, so we talk about Fortnite and Physical Minecraft, on behalf of and then Roblox, and but we were doing it way back in the very beginning of the company, so it was a great fit for us, and as we continue to grow, and it's really exciting to be here today. Greg Abel has talked to me about you guys. He said he's been very impressed with what you've seen, because he's their operations guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's yeah, looking yeah. through all this stuff, uh -huh. reading through the numbers. What's happening in the toy business right now? I mean, it's so much has changed with Toys R Us out, with all the changes that have come, and I guess Walmart and Amazon, and uh, Target all selling more. How, how has it affected the business overall? What do you guys do? Do you want to? I, mean, I think the toy business is, you know, one that is extremely resilient. And I feel like that's something that Greg was able to see. And there's it, always a Christmas. <laughs> the children don't know there's a recession. <laughs> yes. So there's always they a Christmas. They don't know about inflation or recessions. And as long as you're building smart product and you're really catering to your audience with price and value, then you can be really successful. And it's kind of been our model all along. And I think that's one of the things Greg saw. Uh, do, you do you guys do direct to consumer too? or is it Not yet soon. Oh, so we do have a Squishmallow site, but we are gonna have a direct to consumer site sometime this year. And when you've done, actually I thought I read somewhere that one of the the ideas is the, the, the scarcity of these things. You sell these things for five to $40, yeah. the Squishmallows. They, re they they go on eBay for like a thousand bucks sometimes. Yes. So you look at that and think, wait a second, maybe we should sell more or no. not? No. no. That's, we love that. Secondary market is so important to our business and being from the collector world and the video game world, we know that and we're really focused on making sure that we're not a fad. And since, you know, if we're six years in now, going on our seventh year and we're only going to get bigger and stronger by being smart and telling retailers they can't have every single piece they want. They yeah. don't like it when we tell them they can't have everything, but it's the right thing for the business. So what we find is that the last dollar is the dollar that you don't want. Yeah. So for us, if we're able to have this brand become a staple forever, it's already been seven to almost eight years, that is the holy grail in the toy industry. Judd and Laura, I want to thank you both for your time. Thank today. you so, so much. much. It's really wonderful. Thank you. This has been the second part of our Squawk Pod Report series, Weekend with Warren Buffett, part three coming your way tomorrow, and that features an interview with Howard Buffett, who is expected to one day take over from his father as chairman of the Berkshire Hathaway board. The board will be faced with some tough decisions, but you know, we got a great board. It's very cohesive. People understand what my dad has built, and they understand what my dad wants in the future. If you can't get enough of Berkshire's businesses, please sign up for CNBC's Buffett Watch newsletter that is edited by Alex Crippen, who you've heard in this podcast. You'll get weekly updates on Berkshire's top stock holdings and exclusive video clips from the Buffett archive. You can sign up at buffettnewsletter.com. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Squawk Pod is produced by me, Katie Kramer, Cameron Costa, Caroline Rohotis, and Zach Felici. John Lazration is our editor. Thanks to Becky, Mike Santoli, Lacey O'Toole, and the whole CNBC team in Omaha. Please keep listening. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, 
The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 